Our text for today is from our gospel reading from Luke chapter 22. I'm going to be showing all the verses on the screen this morning, but I do encourage you, open up God's Word if you would like. Uh, if you're going to use one of our church Bibles, Luke chapter 22, this text is found on page 883. Page 883. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 63. This long passage of Scripture, the setting of this passage of Scripture, the time of day in which all of this takes place is at night under the cover of darkness. And darkness really is one of the central themes that we see in this particular section of Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself, in the moment when he's being arrested by the chief priests and the officers of the temple, he says something a little bit strange. He says this in verse 53. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Other translations say the authority of darkness. Other translations say the hour when darkness reigns. So here in this section of Scripture as they are under the cover of physical darkness which blinds the eyes, we see they are also surrounded by this spiritual darkness which blinds the heart. And here in this particular section of Scripture, we see three different occasions, three different moments when Jesus Christ is rejected by three very different groups of people. And in these three rejections of Christ, we see two different things. First of all, we see the great danger of this spiritual darkness. And secondly, we see here how that spiritual darkness might be overcome. In these three different rejections of Christ, we see, first of all, the great danger of the spiritual darkness, but then secondly, how that darkness can be and indeed was overcome. So let's look at this very first moment of rejection. And in fact, we're going to kind of work backwards through the text. This is a moment when the guards of the temple rejected Christ and were beating him and mocking him. We see this in verse 63 and following. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, How is it that they are rejecting him in this moment where they're blaspheming him, they're mocking him? Here, these guards are mocking him as a prophet. 
Later on, we'll see some of the Roman soldiers who mock him as a king with the crown of thorns. And then at the cross, we'll see some of the people, indeed one of the thieves on the cross next to him, mock him as the Son of God. If you're truly the Son of God, then save yourself and us. Come down from the cross. Mocking him as the Son of God, mocking him as a king. Again, these guards are mocking him as a prophet, as a man of God, and they're beating him, rejecting him. Now the question is why? Why are they rejecting him in this way? Well, it's this. That if Jesus truly was a prophet, if Jesus truly was a man of God, there is no way that God would allow him to suffer like this. If you are a prophet, if you are a man of God, then why would God allow this to happen to you? Wham! If you are a prophet, if you're truly a man of God, then why would God allow this to happen to you? Slap! They understood, they absolutely understood and knew that God could never work through weakness or suffering. Now there's a story all the way back in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 1. This is the story of the prophet Elijah who has angered the king in some way and the king sends out 50 soldiers after him and this is what it says in 2 Kings chapter 1. It says, Then the king sent to him Elijah, a captain of 50 men, with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. You see, he named it and he claimed it. And this is how God works through power and through glory. God could never work through suffering. God could never work through weakness. They believe. So they've rejected him. Now, application. One of, if not the number one reasons why people state that they do not believe in God, why they reject God or reject Jesus Christ, is because you look at it all the suffering in the world and all of the pain and misery and the evil in the world and say, ha, there cannot be a God. If God was all-loving and if God was all-powerful, then why would he allow such suffering? And there's mockery in that. Rejection. Now apply this not just to the world or the culture, but to yourself and the dangers of spiritual Darkness, because I am standing before people here today and I know there are many of you who have endured the long, dark night of the soul of wrestling with God. Some of you have not suffered that much in your life. You're just too young. 
It's not if we will suffer, it's when. And some of you know very well the darkness and the despair, the fear, even the surprise. What? This is happening to me? God, are you there? God, are you with me? God, how could you do this? And we cannot fathom how God is actually working through or using the suffering and the weaknesses and the evils in our life. That is a danger of spiritual darkness in those moments, in those seasons of suffering. That's the first thing that we see in this first rejection of Christ. There's a second rejection of Christ here. By his friends, by his disciples, Peter and his denial, all the disciples, of course, run away and leave him, but most specifically we see this in the betrayal of Judas. It says in verse 47 that while he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now why a kiss? This kiss which is not a real kiss. What's the meaning of this kiss and the betrayal of Judas? Well, a kiss, of course, is something that is very intimate, very close, unless if you, if you grew up in the 1970s and 80s family feud and that host would kiss every single person down the, some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> a kiss is something that is used to display affection, love, a closeness, a fellowship. I think we all know that if we are betrayed, if we're wronged by someone that we don't know, a stranger, I mean, that's bad enough. But if we are betrayed or wronged by someone who's supposed to love us, by a friend or by a spouse, we know how exponentially more painful that is. That Judas here is betraying the intimacy he had with Christ. He is betraying the friendship. He's betraying the love. And we hold up Judas, the betrayer, do we not, as the worst sin and the worst sinner. If you're familiar at all with Dante's Inferno, if you had to read that somewhere along the way, it's a fictional writing, of course. But there's all these different levels of hell, and there in the very center of hell, in the worst place possible, there is Judas, the betrayer. The worst of the worst. But do you remember when Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And what do the disciples say? Oh, one of us is going to betray you. We know who it is. It's clearly Judas. He's been a bad egg from the very beginning. You know, Jesus, you sent us out to perform all those miracles. He didn't perform a single one. I mean, Judas, Judas, we always knew it was Judas. Not what they said. One of you is going to betray me, and every single one of them said, Is it me? Is it I, Lord? 
because they all knew fundamentally deep down they were all capable of it. We hold out Judas, the betrayal, as a sort of an outlier, as the worst of all the sins, as the extreme form of sin. It's not. It is garden variety sin. It is the very essence of sin itself, is a betrayal of the intimacy that we have of God. It's a betrayal of the love that God has for us. It's a betrayal of a relationship. That's what it is. That's what sin is. Listen to how Isaiah describes the love that God has for us here in Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, the, the audacity of God to compare his love to the love of a mother who's given birth to her child and the child is nursing. There's even that physiological type of response of a nursing mother and the overwhelming love and commitment and dedication of the mother to that child that she is caring for. And yet God says, even they might forget. But God says, I will never forget you. I will never forget you. How often do we forget all about him? Time after time after time after time after time. How many times a week? How many times a day? How many times an hour? Do we just forget? So many more important things. I mean, there are so many YouTube cat videos you can watch. I mean, there's so many other things. We break a commandment. We're not just breaking rules. We're breaking a relationship. We're breaking his heart. We're all betrayers. We all turn away again and again. This is another danger of the spiritual darkness that can overcome us. To leave God? And so, this is some of the dangers of spiritual darkness. We've seen that in the first rejection by the guards. We see that in the second rejection by the disciples, by Judas. How is it that this spiritual darkness can be overcome? How can it be overcome? Well, there's a third rejection that we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verses 41 and 42, Jesus falls down to the ground in prayer and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and then his sweat became like 
great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What is happening to Jesus? It says that he is in an agony and that what? Capillaries or, or blood vessels under the strain and the stress is bursting and it's mixing with the sweat and dropping to the ground and Jesus is overwhelmed in this moment. You say, why is he in agony? Why is he so overwhelmed? Well, he knows he's about to die. And anyone who has faced death knows the fear that can overcome you. But can we be honest? Throughout the history of the world, there have been any number of people, there have been thousands of people who have faced physical death braver than this. Even Christians, history records thousands of Christians going to their death, going to their martyrdom in the arena, and they're singing hymns of praise. This is so much more than simply physical death. Notice here, Jesus falls to the ground in prayer, and always when Jesus, he would spend all night in prayer to the Father, and it would invigorate him, it would refresh him. Here, the prayer seems to be making things worse. He prays to the Father, and then it says he's in an agony. He prays to the Father, it says more earnestly, and then his sweat is like drops of blood. What is happening? He's getting a sense of something. He's getting, even here in the garden, a taste of something. Mark's gospel actually says, Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. That whatever is happening to Jesus is so overwhelming, it could kill him in the garden. God has to send an angel there to strengthen him. You're not supposed to die in the garden. In this prayer to the Father, what does Jesus say? Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. What is the cup? We saw it in our Old Testament reading. We see it throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It is the cup of God's wrath, holy and just. It is the cup of God's judgment upon the brokenness, upon the evil and the sin of the world, of our betrayal, of our rejection of him. Here, Jesus is getting just a sense of it, just a, maybe a taste of what is to come, and he is overwhelmed. His soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He is in agony. What is happening here? Well, look. I said to you that the more close a relationship, the more painful it is when that is lost. And if there's a guest here today, if there's a visitor here today, and you come up to me after the service, you say, Scott, I think you're pathetic. I think you're a fool. I'm leaving, and I'm never coming back. I go, okay, that's weird. If Nate Piragoy, my brother, my friend, were to come up to me today and truly say, Scott, I think you're pathetic. I think you're a fool. I'm leaving our Father. I'm never coming back. That would be rough. Don't do that. <laughs> if my wife, Leah, 
were to come to me and say, Scott, I think you are pathetic. You are a fool. I am leaving you, and I am never coming back. I would be inconsolable on the floor. We can only begin to imagine the infinite love between God the Father and God the Son. Think of the greatest love in the history of the world. That is a drop of water. That is a molecule of H2O compared to the Pacific Ocean of love between God the Father and God the Son from before all eternity. And Jesus here in the garden is just getting a scent, just getting a taste of losing as we know when Jesus was hung upon the cross and as he cried out his final cry it says there was darkness over the whole land. There was darkness over the whole land that Jesus on the cross is absorbing in himself the darkness. And why is he doing that? For glory? He already had the glory. He's doing it for power? He already had all the power. He's doing it to earn his father's love? Of course not. Why is he doing all this? He's enduring this for you, for us. So that when the spiritual darkness of our own suffering comes into our life, we might say, I know that he loves me. I know that he's there for me. Look at what he's done for me. And light can shine in the darkness of your worst moments. And when the spiritual darkness of temptation and of betrayal comes into your life and you've turned away from him for the thousandth time, that light can shine and you can turn back to him in repentance, which is what happened to Peter. He saw the face of Jesus and he went out and he wept bitterly. But what about Judas? As we conclude, Judas was overtaken, was consumed by the darkness. He changed his mind, he gave back the money. But instead of turning to Jesus, he took a rope and went to a tree. He was consumed by the darkness. Here is the greatest danger of spiritual darkness. First of all, it's not believing or seeing that you need to be forgiven. But the greatest danger of spiritual darkness is believing that you cannot be forgiven. That Jesus would turn to you today And he would say to you, do you really think that your betrayal would stop me from loving you? Do you really think the countless times you've turned away from me, the countless times you've betrayed me would stop me from forgiving you? Look at what I've done for you. You're mine. I love you. Turn back to me. And so this morning as you come up to the table, 
and you take bread and you take wine, you get the little taste, you get the little sip. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did he have? He had just, just a taste, just a sense, just a little sip maybe of, of the coming darkness and of the cup of sorrow so that this morning you can come forward and you get just a taste and a sip of the cup of joy a foretaste of the feast and the celebration to come. It's yours even this morning to overcome the darkness with his light and his love. Oh, to Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.